Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Good evening, everybody. And once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you tonight. A little bit interesting twist, if you will, or plot twist, however you want to phrase it, uh, tonight's show. Uh, one of our guest panelists is actually going to be sticking around uh, on the second half uh, and joining me as my special guest of the evening. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, he's been on the panel a few times this year. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a second, as well as uh, my good friend uh, joining us on the panel as well. Um, but first, let me remind everybody, of course, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central uh, here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And the easiest way to find us is go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live is the link, or you can just type in golf talk live uh, up in the search key, and that will take you to the main uh, page. Uh, on there, uh, it's during the live broadcast. You'll be front and center for the uh, show of the evening. Uh, otherwise, you can scroll down to the on-demand section, and you can check out all of the previously aired shows in their entirety as the recorded versions are there so and they're always uh, done from the most recent at the top and then work your way back to some of the older seasons so there's lots of seasons there this is season 11 of course so there's lots of uh, great uh, broadcasts that have previously aired uh, including some other coaches corner and some other interesting guests along the way so uh, be sure to check those out uh, when you've got uh, nothing else to do there's always some good uh, instruction and good uh, discussions going on uh, all right, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to start things off with Coach's Corner, and joining me tonight are two great uh, professionals. Uh, first up is Pete Buchanan. He's uh, been teaching this uh, great game for over 30 years now. Uh, he's the founder and director of instruction of Plain Simple Golf, uh, which, of course, houses the Plain Simple Golf circuit and the Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace, and he's been helping uh, many golfers out there focus on building a repeatable uh, swing and uh, he's been on the panel for many, many years and always enjoy having him on. Also, as I mentioned, uh, he's going to be a guest a little bit later on as well, but he's joining me first on the panel, Jim Endicott. He's been on a few times this year already. Uh, he is the Director of Instruction at the Royal St. Cloud uh, Golf Links in St. Cloud, Florida, and he's been teaching as well for over 30 years, uh, uh, teaching people of all different levels uh, to become better golfers. Uh, he's received also numerous awards, including the Orange Belt Conference uh, Youth Player Development Award, as well as the 2022 East uh, Chapter of the North Florida PGA Section's uh, Patriot Award and their uh, Youth uh, Player Development Award. And also, I believe he won the uh, Youth Development Award in this year as well in 2023. And he's also a former director of uh, the Golf Schools, uh, Golf Digest, excuse me, uh, schools as well. So, guys, uh, welcome to Coach's Corner Panel. Thanks, Ted. Thank Good you, Ted. Here. It's great to be here and great to be on the panel again. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Yeah. You guys uh, have been on uh, a, a couple times this year. Jim, I know you've been on a few extra 
uh, times helping uh, fill in some spots here and there, and I appreciate that always. Um, so we're going to talk about, uh, Pete, this will be one of the things right up your alley, of course. We're going to talk a little bit about training aids, um, and then we're going to get into some other things uh, as well. But the first question I have, and it's the same question for both of you, um, do they really work is the first question I want to ask you. And you don't have to get into a lot of detail, obviously, at this point, because I'm going to unpack it as we go along. But um, do they really work? There's a lot of training aids. Uh, Pete, I'm going to start with you because I know you've got a great uh, uh, aid that uh, has helped many golfers. So I'm going to get your thoughts here first off, and then, Jim, I'm going to get your thoughts as well. But do they really work? That's a great question. You, it all depends really what you're looking for. I mean, there there can be some training aids that are out there that maybe, you know, don't really fit the specifics of what you're trying to do. But on the other side of the coin, there are some that really fit what you're trying to do. So, you know, I think it's more looking at, you know, what you're trying to achieve and then getting a training aid that's going to help you, uh, you know, develop what you're trying to do. I mean, that's what I was trying to do with mine. I had a specific part of the swing I was looking to try to control and so I developed a training aid to, to do just that. So in that particular sense, it's very beneficial for what you're trying to do. But, you know, anything that can, that can give you, you know, some repeated practice, something that can give you a better perspective of what you're trying to do that can help you feel something that you're trying to make, I think in that regard, you know, training aids are very, very uh, successful at helping you to do, you know, those types of things, you know, to achieve something that you're, you're trying to work on. Um, but again, there's like you said, there's tons of them out there. But I think if you can find the ones that are specific to the things that you're trying to do, then they're extremely beneficial to you know helping you improve your practice and, and get a little bit better at uh, you know making better contact. I couldn't agree, um, Jim. Your thoughts on this as well? I, I think you probably agree a lot with what uh, Pete just said. Um, but anything that you want to add? And then I've got a specific question um, that Pete kind of answered but didn't use the specifics that I'm going to. Um, but uh, go ahead, Jim. What are your thoughts here, training aids? Uh, do they work? Uh, can they, or, or are they just uh, uh, just something else that's uh, collecting dust? Well, I think uh, you have to have the right pill for the right uh, uh, ailment. Uh, make sure, and Pete alluded to this, we have to make sure that the training aid is going to fit what we're trying to fix. And, and I think they're very effective if used the right way. Uh, they can really help to uh, educate the player on the feel of what they're trying to achieve. You can show somebody something. You can put them into positions. But sometimes the aid can give them a better feeling of actually swinging with it, uh, using it as a visual uh, to get them the feel of what they're trying to achieve. So I think they're very effective, provided, again, that it's the right aid for the right fix. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with both uh, answers here. So, Pete, I'm going to come back to you, and I, and I said I was going to dial in a little bit more specific, and I'm going to do um, two components to this. You're going to answer the first one, and then Jim is going to answer the second part. So what should we and, – and when I say we, um, I'm talking – in your case, from the coach's perspective, what should we be paying attention to as far as feedback? Because I think that's the key, really, and that's kind of what you were alluding to. Um, I, I know you use some different language, but essentially what you're looking for from a training aid is feedback um, to provide you with the, with the right feedback for whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. So from a coach's perspective, what are you looking for when you 
have a student that's using a specific, whether it's your own personal uh, 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 training aid that you're using or, or if you're using something else as well. In addition, from your perspective as a coach, teach professional, what kind of feedback are you looking for? Well, I think it's twofold. One, are they getting a better understanding of what we're trying to accomplish with the training aid? And the second part of that is results. Are they hitting better shots? I mean, so if the aid's working, then we should be able to see results pretty quickly. I think the bottom line is, are we getting the contact we're looking for? If we're not, then, you know, it may not be a fit to what's trying to happen. But, you know, I want somebody to get a better understanding, first of all, of what we're trying to accomplish. And the training aid can help, you know, give that. But secondly, we've got to get some results. I mean, that's really the bottom line of what we're after anyway. Yeah, I couldn't agree. Uh, more than that. Um, so, Jim, from a player's perspective, and player doesn't necessarily have to be a high-caliber player. It can certainly be any level player. Um, but they're obviously wanting feedback from the device. If they're not understanding certain concepts or they're not understanding certain positions or whatnot, um, you may incorporate or introduce a, a specific training aid that hopefully will help them achieve that. So what kind of feedback do you want to ensure that they're getting? Piggyback on what uh, Pete said there in the results. They want to see the results from using that training aid. And uh, oftentimes a training aid is trying to get them to feel or uh, see a position that they're trying to achieve in the golf swing. And so if they can do that and see it in a mirror and or do that and see the results from the flight of the golf ball, then they're getting the proper feedback from it. Um, So I think they're looking primarily on results and results are ideally ball flight uh, but secondarily are they getting the change in what position they're trying to achieve that the aid is trying to put them in okay very good i, I like that uh, answer as well um pete i'm going to come back to you and and uh, again from a from a player and coaches i'm going to give you the player's perspective this time and then jim uh, you're going to deal with the coach's perspective. Question, again, we're going to stick with training aids for another minute or so. Can we overdo it with training aids? So in this case, Pete, the player, can they rely too much? Is that possible for them to rely too much on the training aid? In other words, they're utilizing it so much that they're not really, um, you know, they're certainly getting the feedback maybe that you want, but is it is it possible that they're maybe overusing the, the training aid and sometimes it's not going to be as helpful after a period of time because they've already gotten the concept. Is that even possible? Yeah, I think that can be possible, especially if you're trying to use a training aid to exaggerate a position from where they are. Um, and then if they overdo it, they can actually take it too far the other direction. But as a player, I would be one that I want to mix up my practice. So I want to do some with the training aid and some without so that I can sort of develop a feel without the training aid to achieve what it was trying to give me. So, I, you know, I think you always have to be careful with, you know, trying to overdo it too much. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I use a lot of them as an exaggeration. You know, for a simple thing like a, an alignment stick, you put it down there and you're trying to get them to swing a different direction as a visual. Uh, you don't want to leave it there for forever because then you'll change it too far. But, you know, you, you sort of give them a little of the opposite for a little bit to sort of get back to neutral but you just have to make sure you don't take it too far because you can. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's uh, uh, well said. And, and Jim, from from the coach's perspective, I guess, 
I equate it to riding, you know, learning to ride a bike. I mean, you know, many years ago, I mean, things have changed, but many years ago, you know, we had things like training wheels. And, uh, you know, you went out there and you had the training wheels, and there came a certain point in time when you felt confident and steady. Uh, we took those training wheels off, and lo and behold, in 99.9% cases, you got the gist, and, and uh, you were fine riding that bike. Um, so the, the question I ask you, from a coach's perspective, and this, again, sort of refers to what Pete alluded to as well, is, you know, can you overdo it? Can we get to the point as a coach that they're so involved with the training aid that they're not um, – you know, sort of focusing on, okay, I've, I've gotten the concept now, I need to put it in practice. What, what are your thoughts here? Um, yeah, I think there is, a, uh, there is a transition time from utilizing the training aid to now can I transfer the information that I have gathered from the training aid, the feeling, uh, the the change of direction, as Pete alluded to, with the alignment sticks that gave me maybe a, a picture of a different direction of swing. And, and can they take that and transfer it to hitting shots without the aid? Uh, I get the question all the time because I'll have uh, players work with as simple as working on a lie, and then they always say to me, well, goodness, I can't use a tee on the fairway out on the golf course. Well, that's true. But we're trying to make your golf swing more perfect. I want you to practice from a perfect situation so we can get the feel of what the change needs to be. Once we're able to do that, then we transfer it to application and we put ourselves in a real situation. So I think there's a balance between how much we use the aid to how quickly we can transfer the information from what the aid's giving them to application, and that's that's our job as the coach to see when is that proper time to move them over to applying it in more real situations. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's okay, um, you know, for students to continue to use that in maybe a practice session uh, when they're on their own to just sort of um, not so much a, from a, a reevaluation standpoint, but just to feel that feeling uh, again when when the coach is not around to, to guide or to assist um, I think it's good and, and healthy to do that um, but uh, again you have to you know hate to use this analogy but proverbial uh, cut the proverbial uh, uh, umbilical cord there comes a point in time when they have to be able to grasp the concepts and be able to to perform the tasks at hand um, without the, the aid um, and and certainly to refresh their memory at a later point um, you know, those can be brought back in from time to time. But I think if it's constant, um, sometimes it can be overdone. And, and as you both pointed out, uh, sometimes it can have an, uh, an opposite effect. Um, so if, if you were to sum up in a few words, uh, Pete, I'm going to go to you first again, and then Jim. Um, what do you consider, and I know there's, <laughs> this is going to seem like an oxymoron question, but what do you consider to be the perfect training aid? What, 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 value or, or um, I guess, what feedback would constitute the perfect training aid? If you were to design another one, in addition to what you already have, and you can certainly stick to that one, what would you consider the perfect training aid? What is it going to do for me? Bottom line results. Whatever we can put in your hands, it's going to give you the, the, the best results for what you're trying to achieve. Um, I mean, that's really the bottom line. If we're trying to change the impact, you know, what can we, what can we give you that's going to 
you know, make that change the quickest um, and get it to where you can repeat it. I mean, that's really the, the thing that we're all after. Mm-hmm. Can we repeat ball flight? So I think, you know, the results of you know, being able to repeat the things that you're trying to do, I mean, whatever training aid gets you to do that, uh, to me, that would be the best one for you. I happen to think it's mine. You know, I'm a little bit biased, but, you know, hey. Um, but, uh, you know, I think mine works pretty good for, uh, for that uh, that definite deal. But, no, whatever whatever one you have that, uh, you know, can get you the results, I mean, then obviously that's the that's the right one for you to use. Yeah, I, and, and, Jim, I think just to add on to that, I, I think Pete raised a valuable point, and, and Pete, I was obviously purposely setting you up to give you an opportunity to to give a plug here. So, and, and it is a great uh, a great training aid. So, um, you're 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 welcome to do that. Um, but Jim, just to add on to this, <clears throat> pardon me. You know, I, I think that in addition to what Pete said, is obviously, you know, as it, it's results oriented. Um, but I think also to the simpler the aid is in achieving that. In other words if it becomes very complex and cumbersome or challenging to use, even if it, even if it can potentially get good results, that's not necessarily a good thing either, right? If it's, if it's cumbersome or it's awkward or challenging to use uh, or to figure out or however you want to phrase it, that's not always in the best interest of the, of the student or the coach, right? Absolutely. If it's, if it's so cumbersome and clunky to uh, put on or to, to use, uh, the player's not going to use it. Um, if it's as simple as a pool noodle being set on an angle to show them how to see the path down from the inside, uh, they'll use that. Uh, you know, they stick an alignment stick in the ground and stick a pool noodle on it so they can see it. Very simple to set up and very effective. Uh, but again, it has to be used with the right fault in mind of how that's going to fix it. You know, it's kind of like we have to have the right medicine for the, the, the situation. Um, so, yeah, it has to be very simple to use so that they will use it. And we have to uh, give them uh, a way to use it, meaning I want you to use it with this frequency in this many days in a row or this many reps when you do use it. And here's the results you should see if it is being effective. So if it's something to change the direction of the golf swing, how is that affecting the flight of the golf ball? And they need to be able to identify, yes, I see a change, therefore this is working. Now let me try it without it. Right. Yeah, and and I think if it's to help them incorporate a specific feeling, uh, obviously that's going to be results-oriented, then there, there creates an opportunity during a practice session, um, and again, I'm, I'm not talking about with, with you or, or another coach, but if they're on their own, this creates an opportunity for them to, um, you know, especially if they've stepped away from, from the range, you know, maybe uh, for a few weeks and, you know, trying to get back into the groove, this can help them sort of get realigned into what they need to be focusing on and giving them that, that same positive feedback. So I, I think there's Absolutely. a lot of great, yeah, there's a lot of great taste. Uh, and the reason I say, and I'm not, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not trying to knock any any products out there because I think there's a lot of good ones out there. But just to, you know, to to go back to the point I was making is I've seen we, you know, we've all been down to the to the PGA show where we see a lot of the unveiling of things, and, and I've just seen some that 
you know, I, I get it. I understand what they're trying to accomplish. But I know from the fitness industry, um, you know, there's been all kinds of gadgets and that, that have come out that, you know, going to slim the, the stomach and going to do this and do that. And they just end up collecting dust on, you know, on the garage floor or, you know, in a box somewhere because people just find it difficult and challenging uh, to, even though it may, if used properly, get them the result, it, it's not something. And, and I think, w- would you both agree that one of the, the challenges that we're facing now in more modern times is that sort of instant gratification. So if it takes three months to, uh, and I know training aids are, are not quite that, but I'm just trying to use it as an example. But if it's taking a longer period of time to get those results, that's a challenge in itself. W- would you both agree with that, Pete, Jim? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we're, we're sort of discussing that a little bit before. That's the challenge we're running into now with, you know, there's so much information out there, and but they want it yesterday. And so, you know, at, and again, you know, as we know as coaches, it all depends on where they're coming from to to how quickly that change and the benefits are going to hit them, you know. Um, and it's our job to explain that to them so we can sort of get them into a better frame of mind of, you know, how long this is going to take. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's they, they want to get it so fast, so quick. But, you know, you know, on the, on the other side, I will give a plug here, Ted, since you gave me the opportunity. But, but that was yeah. the reason I built the one I built because – you can put it on. You don't have to take it off to switch clubs. It, it's very easy. You can put it on for the entire training session. And I built it specifically so that when they were on their own, I didn't have to worry mm. about them achieving what I was trying to get them to achieve because I knew it was going to do it for them. So, you know, that's that's sort of the background of what I was trying to get when I was, you know, trying to develop it, something that was easy to use but would give them exactly what I was looking for when I wasn't standing behind them. Yeah, and I, I can attest because I've got one. Uh, it works, so it's a very, uh, a very effective uh, training aid for sure. Um, I want to move on to a, a different topic, unless either one of you have anything you want to add. Are we good? I think the training aid. Yeah, we're good. We've hit, yep. hit the mark. Okay, I, I'm going to start Absolutely. with Jim on this one. Then, yeah, I'm going to start on, on on this one with Jim. So, the, the question here is. Or, or the scenario, if you will, is range work versus on-course training. How do we decide what percentage a student should spend on either or both? So, your thoughts, Jim, on this? And when I'm saying range work, it's it could be with a coach or it could be without. Either way, how much time, based on um, how you want them to move forward, should be the should you be working with them on the range versus getting them out in the golf course? What, is there a percentage? Is there a formula? Obviously, it's going to be dependent on the skill level, but ideally, in a perfect world, you want to get them on the course fairly quickly and getting them in real-life situations. We, we all get that. But is there a formula that, in your own mind, based on the level of player, that you say, okay, I want to get you out here first, then we're going to move over here, and if things go the way we want, then I'm going to increase this over here. Do you have a formula that you work with? I think it's more player dependent than anything. And when I say that, that doesn't necessarily mean skill set. Uh, it's how they learn. Um, there are players who learn better in the, uh, let's call it, less intimidating environment of the range. And then there are players who learn better in the actual application environment of being on the golf course. I've taken 
brand new golfers on the golf course because they needed to see uh, what what is this? What is this thing called golf, and 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 how is what I'm doing on the range applied to what we're planning to do? And they they learned exponentially by being on the golf course, even though they were brand new. And mm-hmm. yet I've had very experienced players take them on the golf course, and they are so wrapped up in wanting to learn how to hit the ball better that they wanted the time on the range. And so you have to kind of assess uh, how do they learn best. There is a definite need for, and I think there's uh, a lot of instruction that is not enough on the golf course, but there has to be the right balance for the player themselves in, in teaching them both mechanics on and off the golf course but getting them out there to play to meet their goals and objectives. Well said. So, again, I think it's more of the player versus the skill. Yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously every player is different, so that's going to fluctuate and and there's going to be other variables involved. Um, So uh, great, great uh, answer there. Uh, And, and Pete, I think – Again, you would agree that it it depends on the individual player, but do you have a a formula that you work with for your own – uh, students that you found obviously a lot of success. I know you want to get them out in the golf course uh, relatively quickly as well. Um, but I like what, what Jim said about, you know, even with new students, sometimes getting them out in the golf course first, just so they understand what all the stuff we're talking about on the range actually means, what it's for, how it's applied. Um, give me your thoughts on, on this uh, question. How do we decide what percentage uh, to spend on, on both of these areas with our students? Well, I usually look at a little bit on you know, ball control. When I get players that can start to control the ball very well and, and the range sessions are, are, you know, getting better and better at, at being able to control not only direction but distances, then I try to get them to go play because I want them to get out there and, and take the ability to control the ball and, and figure out how to make it work on the golf course. So, you know, somebody who's very skilled at controlling the ball, I'll probably do, you know, probably 70% play, 30% practice. Um, because they need to get, they can control the ball already. They don't need as much time, so I'll have them out there playing quite a bit. And then if you have some that just can't control the ball very well, to, to save a little bit of frustration, uh, you know, I'm going to have them practice a little bit more to gain more control over their shots. And you know, to a certain extent, can still have them practice, but put them in playing situations while they practice. You know, we're fortunate enough to have a really great short game area, so we can take them and put them in all kinds of scenarios for short game that gives them a, a little bit more realistic opportunity to be able to practice some of the situations they're going to see. And I think too, some of that practice has to be, um, you know, in that type of stuff, you know, play some shots, work on some shots that, you know, you're going to have in practice uh, so you can put them in play. But, you know, I always look at, at how good they are at controlling the ball. Um, I really like what Jim said about taking new players out there. So they understand exactly what they're up against um, you mm-hmm. know, to be able to see the game and understand it. And I think that helps then to get them to practice a little bit better, uh, to understand that more. And, you know, we've talked about it before. I like to take new players backwards because we start with putting and move the other way. Um, but mm-hmm. that also gives them more control over the ball earlier. And so that's really what I'm looking for. How good are they at, at controlling the golf ball, first of all? And then I'll start to look at, you know, how much I want them to, to practice versus play. Um, but, you know, the ones that are more skilled at controlling it, I want them to play more. Jim, what does strategy become? At what point 
when you're working with a player, um, does strategy become um, an integral part of your instruction? In other words, let me just clarify. Um, you know, they've got pretty good ball control. Certainly, I'm not saying they're a scratch player or anything, but, you know, they can hit a, a pretty decent ball with most of their clubs. Um, they're putting pretty decent. When do, you, when do you sort of flick the switch and say, okay, I've got you where I think you need to be, um, always room for improvement, of course, um, but when do we start really focusing on strategy? Is that something that you try to do fairly quickly uh, as well, get them working on a, a game plan, a strategy, and understanding of how to put all the pieces together? When does that happen for you? I, I get them thinking strategy very, very early in their process. Uh, newer golfers or very experienced golfers. And, and the strategy is different based on their skill set. Uh, and what I mean by that is if I have a fairly new golfer, well, we may start that hole at maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 yards from the green and we give them an expectation of what they're trying to achieve from 100 yards in. Uh, and then I may move them back as they get better and better at what they're doing. But I try to set the expectation of what are they trying to achieve. Uh, and, and I look at it, especially in the newer player, of letting them understand what is success on the golf course. Success on the golf course for them is hitting some good shots doesn't necessarily mean it's a very low score, um, but hitting some good shots, having some fun, enjoying the game. Uh, if they're hitting a, poor, a couple poor shots, walk it up to the green and put it in. See that ball go in the hole. That's fun. Get them to experience what it's like to be out on the golf course. And the strategy is how do I move it from here to there and from there to on the green and how many shots I can based on my skill set. It might be that I'm 100 yards out and I need three hits to get it there. Well, there's a goal and then there's a strategy to get there. I might have to hit three shots with my chipping technique, and I'm successful in that technique, and I got it to the green in three hits. I'm having successes. So that's a type of strategy. Now we go to a more experienced player, and let's take it that they are someone that maybe is a bogey golfer, and they say to themselves, I want to be able to shoot under 90. Well, now we set a strategy for them. And if we looked at par based on two putts is what par is established on, and we're on a par four hole, well, their personal par might be five. And so for them to better bogey golf, they need to make – in their mind, a birdie or two, which is actually on the card par. So if I'm looking at it, I would say, okay, my personal par is five. I get three hits to get to the green. And if that mm -hmm. hole is 330 yards, my three hits need to be 110 yards. Now, they don't have to hit all 110 yard shots, but they could. And that could be their right. strategy to see that ball fly these successes in hitting it and having fun to achieve our goal. So the strategy can start with a very new player and goes all the way to my most competitive players who are competing at a high level in college or trying to play professionally. Um, so I think it, 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 the type of strategy is skill specific 
when do we do it as soon as possible yeah i i think that's a a great um, strategy as well from from a coach's perspective pete you know we we talked about off air a little bit both of you obviously um were exposed to john jacobs um over the years and thinking about what we're talking about now about working with students on the range and working you know on course training that sort of thing what do you think he would say standing there beside you and you're working with a student what advice would he give you um, to help that student what for based on the experience you had together um, I know you both were, but uh, Pete, just from your perspective at this point, what would he, what conversation would he have with you? And I'm talking about John, uh, with you as he's watching you work with a student. What would he want you to accomplish? Well, first and foremost, I think he would, he would want us to keep it as simple as possible. First of all, I mean that's really what we were trying to do. But also just to make sure that we get to the root, the root cause of what's going on. Um, he was always one to try to get to the, you know, what the cause was, first of all, and, and um, you know, and, and understanding the ball flight, but also making sure that you communicate the message the right way. Um, he was a master at it and, you know, could just do it, do it so fast. But I, I think, you know, getting, getting us to get the message to them, um, to get them to understand, you know, the cause and effect based off the ball flight and, um, you know, make sure you, you correct the right piece. I mean, that's really what the biggest part always was. And because um, I, I can tell you, I've told you the story before that he and I met a same guy, and he said, "Go ahead and and work with him." And, and I think about the fifth ball, I got this guy to do what I wanted him to do, and I turned around to John and I said, "What do you think?" He said, "I'd have done it in three balls." But you know, it's just that type of thing that <laughs> you know he always Jim Jim will uh, attest to that. But it was just one of those things that, you know, he always wanted to make sure you could get there as quickly as you could, but also, you know, take it on the right right directive and, and get them to understand it as well. Would you both agree with this statement that most of the, or certainly the majority of the really good instructors approach the theory that the simpler we can keep things, the better? Um, would you both agree with that, that when, especially when you compare it to today's instruction, um, that can sometimes be, as we talked about off-air, can be very overwhelming uh, in, in some respects, but um, through an onslaught of on, online media and so forth. But would you both agree that really the, the, the really good instructors out there, and, and they're all good in, in their own way, but I mean the, really, the ones that sort of rise the cream, as it were, like the, the John Jacobs of the world, that part of the reason as you sort of pointed out Pete that they tended to keep things as simple as possible in their translation would you agree with that Pete and then Jim well yeah I mean that's that's really what it's all about I mean you've got to keep it as as simple as possible because it's you know the you know fixing one thing that corrects four others I mean that's really what it was all about you know get to the root of the problem I mean that's really the the big thing If, if you don't if you don't change the cause, then nothing's going to change. Um, so you really have to be able to, to get to, to dig in there and find that simple cause that's going to make the biggest difference, and um, you know, and, and try to keep the explanation as simple as possible as well, because they're, they'll thrive more that way. Um, you just don't want to overload them with too much stuff. Yeah, 
Um, what are your thoughts, Jim? And would you agree with that? That I think the really good instructors out there, and, and again, that, you know, I'm not belittling anybody out there, but do you think that that's really their strategy? Is you know how can I, you know how can I get the message across as simple as possible so that the student on the other end is going to be able to grasp and receive the message and then be able to implement? Is that your uh, thought as well? Absolutely. I think that uh, one of the challenges with many instructors out there is they find themselves speaking and telling the player all that they know versus telling the player, this is what you need to know to fix what you have not going right. And what Pete was saying there is, how do I get to the root of it and say, this right here will fix a number of ailments. Example, if you're an out-to-end slicer and you're chopping huge divots out of the ground, if I get you to swing it down from the inside, I change the angle of attack without ever having mm-hmm. to tell you I'm changing the angle of attack. I'm changing the direction of the swing. And that, in turn, could, in fact, change the application of the face and the angle of attack by changing the direction of the swing. And and that's the sign of a really good instructor is the one who can say one thing, fix three or four, and the student understands it easily and completely. I always taught my instructors to say, here's what you need to tell your students. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And if you can go through that process, they'll understand it very clearly. And yeah, and, and you won't raise it. Yeah, one top. Sorry, go ahead. And stay as as much as you can. Excuse me, to one topic in that scenario. Yeah, I I, I think that's spot on. You know, and the reason why I say that is because. You know, we, we see this quite often, um, and again, this is in all, it's not just in golf, it's in, in every line of work, but it, it's good, an instructor, coach, whatever, you know, title you want to use, to acquire as much information on the subject that you're teaching, whether it be golf, whether it be you know, whatever. Um, and I think that's good. The more knowledge that you have, um, it's certainly going to be a benefit to the students, but as, as you both have rightly pointed out, you're not there to teach them what you know in the sense of what you've learned um, if it's not directly going to help them. If it's just a matter of saying, here's what I know, um, and it's not really directly going to correlate into them striking the ball better or scoring better or whatever the case is, then that really becomes a disservice, I think. And, And this is one of the issues that I have with some of the modern day instruction, again, I'm not knocking anybody. Everybody has to find their own groove. But I think if you're if you're simply educating the student with what you know, and they're not really absorbing or unable to absorb serving them uh, for that purpose, and I know we'll get into that uh, another time. Uh, in fact, uh, I think you and I, Jim, will get into a little bit of that uh, on the second half of the show when, when it's just you and I. But I just wanted to throw that out there. And, and the reason why I say it is that it, it's important because I want, as I know both of you do, I want students to be able to, uh, you know, learn as, as quickly as possible. I don't want them, you know, have to continue to be frustrated. And certainly there's a lot of people out there that are, are doing great with their games. 
but there's also some that struggle. And with this onslaught of new golfers that have come out uh, in the last few years, you know, as a result, particularly of the pandemic, um, they've been sort of thrust into this arena of, of becoming a golfer. And we want to be able to do them service and do them justice by, you know, certainly teaching them what we know, but not to the point where they're becoming confused or not able to understand what it is that we're saying because they, they didn't see the memo. Um, so that's really, you know, what I want to say about that. I'm going to give both of you an opportunity to answer this question because I think this we've all been down this road a time or two. Uh, Pete, I'm going to come back to you first on this one. What factors should be considered if progress is not being made by the player uh, and coach before calling it quits? So in other words, what I'm politely saying is if things are just not jiving, gelling, or whatever, when do you decide at what point that either you call it, obviously they're going to say, hey, I'm not liking what's going on, but as a coach, when do you make that decision? What, what factors do you consider before making the decision saying, hey, I, I just don't think there's anything I can do to help you? Pete? Well, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, good luck, I'm going to knock on. It's, ca- yeah, it's kind of loaded. Yeah. Just in, let me just preface this, just in case any of Pete's students are listening. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not trying to scare you. Or anything. I'm not trying to scare yeah, you or Jim either. Can I that landmine for a little bit? Um, yes. You no. Know, um, well, I'm going to knock on wood because I haven't. I haven't had that situation yet. I've been able to help everybody that that I've come up against, and I think that's just a basic, you know, a testament to the background of of teaching education that I received. Um, but I have had some where it's a it's a difference of opinion on where we should go. Um, so it's not that the, you know, I wanted to take it a certain way and they just thought it should go a different way. Now, this is a much, much high level player. Um, so in that respect, then you get to a point to where if, you know, I see it one direction and they see it another, then you just have to say, Hey, we don't see eye to eye here. So, you know, it's probably best if we just, you know, part ways here. Um, but from a, Mm. from an overall standpoint of a, uh, you know, just a, a, you know, the regular lessons that, that I've given, um, I've had some personalities that, you know, didn't jive. Um, and so I just thought that, you know, they might fit with, you know, better with somebody else. Um, mm. You know, I've run into that, but I, I've never run into it to, to where I haven't been able to get results. Now, have, right. have I not gotten the results that they obviously think they should have gone from, you know, a, a seven to a one in 22 minutes? Yeah, you get that, you know, but, you know, realistic results, you know, I've always been able to get those. Um, so I haven't run into that from a standpoint of where I, I, you know, I thought somebody should, you know, give in to what we're doing because I've always been able to get them to hit better shots. Um, you know, that's always been my motto. And if I can't, I don't charge them. I mean, that's just, that's the way I've always been. If I can't get them to hit better shots, then, then I missed it. So that's on me. Right. Uh, so it, it shouldn't be on them. I should be able to get them to hit better shots. And so if I can't, then, you know, that's, you know, that's going to be on me. But I haven't run into that yet. So thank, you know, I'm knocking on wood here. So I, I haven't run into that situation. But um, I can definitely see if, if, you know, if you're working with someone and, you know, you just, uh, it, it just doesn't seem to jive and you're not being able to get mm-hmm. any results, then, you know, that may be the time where you have to just say, hey, you know what, you might be better off um, doing a different way. I had that as a youngster. I had a, a professional, you know, say, Hey, I've taken you as far as I can take you. 
um, you need to find somebody who can take you further. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, it was a great what, great thing for them to say. We got along great. You know, everything was fine. But he said, you know, I don't know anymore to get you any better. So you need right. to find somebody who does. You know, so, yeah. Right. So it can be that, you know, as simple as that as well. Jim, I'm going to go to you on this, but I'm going to add just a slight little twist to it um, just to, to make it more interesting as well. But um, for you, um, but great, great answer, Pete, and you're exactly right. I think, I think for the most part, I don't think it becomes an issue. Obviously, personalities can factor in. Uh, but for you, Jim, you know, obviously there's situations where you're doing everything right, but the student is just not pulling their weight because it, it, it's a to and fro. I mean, you're giving them the instruction. You're pointing them in the right direction, but they're taking an entirely different path because maybe they're watching a bunch of videos on, that somebody else is doing online so they're not really incorporating what it is you're trying to do. So are those, give us an idea of some of the factors you consider before you, you know, pull the proverbial uh, plug, if you will, on, on a student. Well, I'd have to echo some of what Pete said. I don't know that I've ever pulled the plug on a, a player. Um, I take it as a challenge to me to meet them where they are. If they're mm-hmm. traveling down uh the we've come to a y in the road and they're traveling down the right side and i see us needing to go down the left side i need to find how do i redirect them to meet where i believe we need to go or do i need to redirect and travel down the road with them and in the longer term get them to the result that i saw at that juncture. Um, so I take it as a challenge to myself, which is why I also study as many different teachers as I possibly can to see different ways to say the same thing. Uh, there's, there's a hundred ways to, to, to communicate the same information and eventually something's going to click that takes them down the, the path we need to go. And, and I need to align to their goals and objectives. Um, what do they want? And, and then I have to tailor myself down their road um, mm-hmm. and get them as good as they possibly can be based on what they're going to give to the, the, uh, the objectives. So I look at it a little bit differently in that I don't need to necessarily mold them to me. I need to provide... Right what they want and meet them at their level, at their direction, at their goals, and and making sure that I align to them and then let's go down that path. Uh, I, again, might see a different way to get there, and I might try to get them a little closer to that road um, through how I communicate, but it's their lesson. It's their game. It's their golf. Mm-hmm. I need to teach them I need to teach the person, and yes, we happen to be learning the subject matter of golf. Do you think, just to follow up, um, Jim, for just a second, do you think sometimes when a student is not, and and I mean, there's obviously a million reasons. I mean, some of it unfortunately falls into the laziness category where they're just not doing the things that they need to be doing when they're away from you, that's a given. I mean, there's going to be situations where they're just not getting to the range and working on some of the the drills and things that that they need to. Um, 
but is it something as simple as meeting them where they are, um, as you suggest? Because, you know, we see that sometimes, and, and maybe not, maybe they're not receiving the motivation that they need. I mean, we might think that we're doing things to motivate them to, to you know, to rise to the challenge, but maybe because they're, you know, dancing to a different tune, so to speak, maybe it's not the, the motivation that they need, um, even if it is a motivation. So is that a factor as well? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I, I just think we have to meet them at, at what they want to achieve. Uh, I'll use an example of this a little bit uh, different angle to look at it, um, but we do uh, PGA Hope at my facility, and we've done for the last six years three programs per year, and each program has between 10, and this one we started actually yesterday, has 20 players in it. And those players are all coming at it from a very different perspective. Some of them are paralyzed from the waist down. Some are simply right. dealing with uh, PTSD. I had a gentleman who was there. Um, he was on a convoy of 24 people, and they were ambushed, and he was the only one who made it. And mm. he came to our program for eight weeks, two hours a day, and when it was his turn for his lesson, he maybe hit three balls a day. And we mm-hmm. spent the majority of the time talking about mm-hmm. life things and how golf was a really cool thing for him. Even though he didn't practice much, he didn't hit a lot, he listened to what I had to say in the lesson, and he had a great time, and he loves golf. So we met him and his level where he was. I couldn't impose a a goal for him. He had his own agenda, and we we did what he needed to do. And so I think the the best instructors are meeting those players and helping them with what they want out of the game, not what you want them to have out of the game. Right. Right, exactly. Um, And, and yeah, sometimes – you know, uh, golf has become very therapeutic. Just uh, for for those that are not familiar with the program, if you wouldn't mind just very quickly, um, Jim, let folks know what the PGA Hope is. Uh, there may be some out there that are not familiar with it. Um, if you can just sort of give them a, a general overview of what the, what the program is about. Yeah, PGA Hope is helping our patriots everywhere is what HOPE stands for, and it is targeted for uh, – veterans who have suffered some form of, of being wounded. It could be a physical wound. They could be missing a limb. Uh, it could be that they're just dealing with uh, the trauma of coming back from war. And it's mm-hmm. giving them an exposure to the game of golf uh, that takes them a little bit away from what they're dealing with in life from what has happened to them at war. And, uh, it's uh, Our program is an eight-week program. Uh, it's two hours each time they come to us, and uh, we teach them all aspects of golf from how to hit a full shot to how to putt it. We take them on the golf course, show them how to go uh, on the golf course and enjoy it out there. We talk about club fitting, rules, etiquette, uh, the whole gamut of golf over an eight-week program. And uh, at our facility, it has taken 
people from never being exposed to the game to now having been back three or four times in the program. And we have some that would have even transitioned to work at our golf course as starters and or mm-hmm. rangers. Uh, so it, it's really changed their lives. Uh, I've seen people come to us and they just crumble at the, the thought and the, the, the stresses of golf and see them go through the program and come back again and, and are still mm-hmm. playing the game five years later. So it's a great program to get them. Just uh, I heard one of them talk about, you know, if you're hitting a golf ball, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about hitting that golf ball. You're not thinking about everything else that's going on in your life. So if we hit 50 golf balls, it's 50 moments of time that what I'm dealing with on a daily basis is gone, and I'm having some Mm -hmm. joy in in hitting a golf ball. So that's kind of the the program there. Yeah, and what a great way to honor um, the many veterans who have served and certainly thank them for their service and this is just one way that golf can, can sort of give back. And as you pointed out, too, I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to mention that a little bit because I think it is very important. And I've had a number of people over the years on the program who have been part of that, um, both as a recipient and also um, from an instructional standpoint uh, involved with the PGA Hope program. So I just wanted you to, to sort of relay that uh, a little bit. Um, so for the folks that may be tuning in aren't familiar with, with that. So if you know somebody that's obviously – uh, has served um, in, in whatever capacity uh, in the military. Um, and whether they've ever played the game before or not, um, definitely uh, this is a program to look into because it, it really does, uh, it's a great way that golf gives back to those that, that have served uh, this nation. So um, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, yes, and, 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 and the way they can find out about it, uh, if I could throw that mm-hmm. out there, they yep. can contact yes, their local VA. Uh, and mm-hmm. each VA hospital will have an adaptive sports uh, person that can guide them towards the program, or they can reach out PGA, and, and if they have that program, they can get them involved in it that way. Yeah, and it's really a nationwide program. There's, I mean, there, obviously, I'm sure there's still some areas that they're, they're continuing to grow it, but it, it is in a lot of different areas. I know, um, just as I said, from some of the people I've had on here, so it's it's a, a gaining a lot of momentum uh, over the years and has certainly uh, I've, I've spoken to a number of people that have been involved with the program on, on both sides of it. And uh, it, it definitely is, is doing a lot of, a lot of good. So, and um, it, you know, many of them that have uh, come back that maybe once played the game um, as you and I have, and have suffered some sort of, uh, you know, traumatic injury, whether it be physical or whether it be something like PTSD um, golf has really, lifted them back up and, and helped them to forget some of the, the challenges that they're facing with now. So you're exactly right. Um, Pete, we, we just got a few more minutes. So I'm going to go back to you because I, I let Jim have a few extra minutes there. Uh, my question to you is, and I'm going to give both of you a very quick opportunity to do this before we break um, and go to the second half, but um, you both worked with John Jacobs. Um, what's the one thing that really stuck out that you learned from him um, that you're still carrying with you today? Pete, you go, Pete, you go first, and then Jim. Well, it has to be the ability to communicate. Um, that, that, to me, was the one thing that stuck out of how good he was at explaining everything that went on. But I think more than anything else, it's, it was ball flight cause and effect. You know, I still use that today. Getting 
being able to understand what makes what happen. And not only that, but then getting your students to understand how to fix themselves. And I think that's where the, the success rate begins to explode because now, you know, I'm training all of my people that I work with to understand exactly what happens every time they, they make an impact and, and to understand the, the cause and effect, but, you know, mostly, you know, to understand why, but how to correct it. And I think that's what stuck with me more than anything else with John is um, just his, his overall ability to communicate and um, not only with the students, but also with the instructors, you know, how you can hand the information down. But I think ball flight cause and effect was the one thing that, uh, that, that stuck with me the most um, in, in working with him. And, and, and I think the other thing, which was just on us is he, he completely challenged us all the time. You know, we would never give you the answer. He'd make you find it. And, and I think that just made us better overall. Um, he'd ask a question and then, you know, he, he wouldn't go to us into, you know, whatever the answer was, he, he'd make us find it. Um, and I appreciated that quite a bit because it, it, it just allowed me to learn so much more from him. But um, yeah, it was def definitely one of the highlights of, of my teaching career to be able to teach with him um, aside from Jim, but um, you know, it's just a, uh, I'm just trying to pull your leg there, Jim. No, it was a great work. With I, you. I noticed. No, <laughs> but um, no, I just, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed it because he, he took a genuine, genuine interest in you, uh, not only as a, as an instructor, but as a person and, and, you know, always did his best to make sure that, you know, you, you understood exactly what was going on. And, um, and, and that's the thing that I, I took away the most. And, um, I, it helped me tremendously to, to, you know, to everything that I'm doing today. Yeah, well said. And and I think when you have to work for something, I think the, the rewards are much sweeter. I think if everything is sort of laid out in your lap, um, it, it, it's not uh, it, it's not savored to, to the same level. Jim, what about you? What did you take away from, from John Jacobs, from your experience? What was something that stuck with you that still sticks with you today? Well, I would say uh, uh, very much what Pete said there is the ability to communicate to the student in a way that the student could become their best teacher. In my lessons, every first lesson with a student, we do a very brief ball flight class to let them understand what we're going to be looking at and how we are going to look at the ball that tells us where to look on you and tells me what to tell you to do. And so that by them understanding their ball flight, I can then give them the ability to analyze that, determine what is it that they need to think about from the lesson, and what drill is it that's going to improve that uh, ability to repeat it. Sure, and, and I think that's really what I took from him was getting the player to become their own instructor by understanding the flight and what we've talked to them about and the simplicity of it. You know, John talked about the golf swing as simplest of terms was two turns and a swish. And if you really mm -hmm. think about it, the body turns and the arms swing up and down. That's as simple as a golf swing is. And we, I know we'll talk a little more later, uh, but the simplicity of the information. And there was one thing I learned from a, a radio show that he did uh, and I thought this, it was, it was kind of uh, liberating to me, if you will. He said one time that he was giving a lesson, and at times he would look at the situation 
and say, hmm, let's do this. I'm not exactly sure why I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it, and it works. And being willing hmm. to try something to make that player better, you look at it, you see it, and you go, this has got to be the thing that works, and then put it into play, and it works. Uh, you've made a, a player better. And and doing that by keeping it as simple as possible. Well said. Great way to, to wrap up uh, the Coach's Corner segment. Uh, thank you both. Um, Jim, I know you're going to be coming back uh, here in a, in a moment or two, so if you need to take a break. Pete, I'm going to give you the opportunity. Jim, I'm going to give you this opportunity a little bit later on in the show since you're going to be sticking around. Um, Pete, but for those that want to reach out and get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? They can reach me at PeteBuchananGolf.com or com. Either one of those will, will, will get all the information that I have. And, uh, Ted, I want to want to thank you again for, for having me on. Jim, always, always great chatting with you, buddy. Uh, we need to do it more often. But, um, um, you know, it, it's been a great time and, and uh, a great show today. So thanks to both of you. Thank My you, pleasure. Pete. It is always great to, to interact with you and talk with you about golf. All right, guys. Thank you both. Thanks, Pete. Have a great uh, Easter holiday. And, Jim, I will be back with you in just a few moments. So uh, take a couple-minute break, and we'll be back here. I'll meet you back here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks, guys. Sounds great. Thank you. And in the meantime, we're going to take a quick break as uh, Jim refreshes himself and uh, hear a quick message from Golf Tips Magazine. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, simple-to-follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, and don't forget to go to GolfTipsMag.com and you can subscribe. It's a uh, bi-monthly magazine. It comes out six times a year. Uh, A lot of great information. It's available in both digital and print formats. You can go to GolfTipsMag.com. And you can subscribe to either or or both uh, options are available. And uh, it's a really good deal. We've got three issues left for this season. And you can actually uh, sign up for multiple seasons. So you're not just limited to uh, the three remaining. You can sign up for all of next year as well. So, uh, And also some great videos and that online can be found at golftipsmag.com. All right, as I mentioned, uh, we've just finished up Coach's Corner, and one of my uh, guest panelists is uh, sticking around. He's going to be my special guest this evening. Let me just remind everybody, for those of you tuning in a little bit late in the program, uh, a little bit about him. His name is Jim Endicott, and he is currently the Director of Instruction at the Royal St. Cloud Golf Links in St. Cloud, Florida. And he's been teaching this great game for over 30 years, uh, teaching players of all uh, levels, uh, and uh, also has received numerous uh, awards and accolades, including... Uh, Youth Player Development Award, uh, uh, Section uh, Patriot Award at the North Florida PGA Section, which is where he is uh, housing, if you will, and uh, also was a former director of the Golf Digest Schools as well. So 
Uh, please welcome back. I think he's taken a few deep breaths and whatever, hopefully. And uh, please welcome back uh, my special guest this evening and uh, previous panelist, uh, Jim Endicott. Welcome back. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Um, that was a, a quick break, and uh, now we're. I hope you've had it, took a few deep breaths because I'm going to uh, hit you with a few more <laughs> more questions. Um, but what I but what, before we get into some of the questions, just if you wouldn't mind very quickly, uh, let the call. I, I, I always like to do this, and I know you've been on the panel a number of times, and I know you're a, a, a phenomenal instructor. And we we just talked for those that were tuning in uh, about your time with uh, with John Jacobs, and obviously you, you knew Pete Buchanan as well through that uh, endeavor. Uh, but for those that uh, maybe are not familiar with you a little bit, uh, how did you get into golf? Not so much from instruction, but why golf? What was it about golf that attracted you to the game? Um, actually, I was exposed to the game of golf uh, very young from my father. My father was uh, an athlete all through his high school life, and, and he wanted uh, his son to uh, be engaged in athletics. And I was actually born with a uh, congenital heart defect. So some of the athletics that he would have wanted me to be involved in, uh, I, I couldn't be there. I, I couldn't go play baseball or, or football, anything that uh, was uh, requiring uh, endurance type of running and that sort of thing. And so he took up the game of golf and exposed me to it at a young age of uh, eight years old and uh, gave me some clubs and sent me out in the backyard to hit from one fruit tree to the next in our uh, couple acres of of yard. And uh, from there, I, I, I grew a love to it and, and continued to play it all through high school and and uh, began actually teaching the game of golf while I was in college to help uh, help pay my way through college. What was it? Uh, I mean, obviously to to help uh, you know, as you were um, a young developing man. What was it about the instruction side that appealed to you? Obviously, you wanted to help pay some bills initially, but obviously it stuck with you, and you decided to take it a little bit further and, and become a top level instructor. What was it about instruction that appealed to you? Well, actually, uh, instruction uh, kind of was exposed to me very young. Uh, I thought it was really uh, a cool thing. The club professional, when I was about 10, 11 years old, uh, he was. we were in Germany, and he was there at the golf club uh, in the summer. And in the winters, he would go and give lessons on a cruise ship. And I thought, wow. That's a really cool thing. Maybe I could do that at some point. And then I got into teaching in college. Uh, one of the people that was helping me with my game said, you know, you seem to have a good handle of the game. Why don't you start uh, um, giving some lessons here at the range? And I did. And and I really kind of fell in love with seeing the successes of the players that I was helping and when they, the light bulb would go on and, and uh, got excited about uh, that change and, and seeing the ball fly better and, and then hearing them come back and say, wow, I had my career in just the other day thanks to your help. And uh, so that really created a, a, 
a, a real desire to to help people with their game and, and teach them the game of golf. Yeah, there's a certain uh, you know it, it's interesting because um, there's a little bit of an irony as well, and, and I'm sure you can appreciate that is we get to a point we spend so so much time teaching everybody else how to uh, become better players. Um, and in some respects, our own, uh, and, and certainly not for everybody, but for a lot, our own games suffer a little bit because we don't get a chance. We're so busy on the lesson tee, we don't get a chance to play our own game anymore, uh, certainly, you know, as time goes on. But, um, you know, and, and I hear this a lot from instructors that, you know, when they first get in, it's, oh, great, you know, I'm going to be in the, the golf business, I'm going to play a lot of golf. And they do, certainly initially, until they develop their clientele. And then it's like they um, are lucky if they get out of a golf course to play you know, uh, a quick nine sometimes. So um, it, it can have a double-edged sword. But we talked about a little bit earlier tonight on the Coach's Corner panel, we were talking about things like communication and the importance of that. Um, golf instruction certainly is something that is greatly needed if you want to become a better player at whatever level, whether you want to get to the top of uh, the game of golf or whether you just want to be a better all-around player. Um, but sometimes it can become very complicated. What are some of the things from your perspective do you think that golf instruction can do that can sometimes make it very complicated? Well, I think uh, it can be a very complicated game if we get into the minutia of the uh, intricacy of very small movements in the golf swing. Uh, But I think it's more of the ability to communicate and get to the root of the problem that can keep golf instruction simple. Uh, I think that all too often golf instruction gets to a point of uh, the instructor wants to impress their player by giving them the information that they know, uh, letting them know that they know a lot about the game. Uh, where that's really not what the player needs. The player needs you to meet them where they are, create a rapport with them, understand what they want, and then deliver to them they want and what they need. And to be able to simplify it to uh, how do I fix three things with one correction? And if there's a fault that they have that maybe is going to enhance the fix, leave it alone. Let that be while you fix this, and then through time that may go away based on what you gave them in the correction. So keeping golf instruction pointed to the player, their learning style, their uh their goals, their objectives, and, and and meet them where they are and what they're trying to achieve. Uh, I think we can keep golf instruction more simple that way. Yeah, I think uh, you're exactly right. And I know, as I said, we touched on this a little bit earlier in the, in the panel discussion. Um, sometimes golf instruction conflicts with itself, and if so, why and how? Um, yes, I, I think that... If you were to jump out there and, and flip on you, the YouTube channels and uh, and listen to uh, different instructors, 
you'll find that one says, well, you don't want to use your wrists. You need forward shaft lean. And then the next person says, uh, I need you to release the golf club more and use your wrists more. Well, both are valid. Both are good bits of information. All of the instruction out there uh, has some validity. The challenge to it is, is it valid for you, the player? For example, a player who needs to increase the use of their arms and their hands and a releasing of the club head is one that has a ball that's curving away from them. So as a right-handed golfer, the ball that's curving to the right, they need to use that club head a little bit more. Where the player who's got it curving towards them or as a right-handed golfer curving to the left, their hands are probably very active. And so we need to do some things that might limit or slow down the releasing of the golf club by increasing the speed of the body. If I were to increase the speed of the body to a player who slices the ball, I'm going to make them slice further. If I increase the speed of the body with someone who hooks the ball, I got a great chance to slow down the closing of the face relative to the path and get rid of the hook. So based on what the ball is doing, the information has to be different based on the fix. But if we don't get the understanding of what we're fixing, then all we hear is, well, they told me to use my hands. He told me to not use my hands. That sounds conflicting. Right. It's valid information right. based on what we're trying to fix. Yeah, and you and you raise a, a really interesting point because, you know, there is so much information. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are situations, and, and, again, I'm not here to decide one way or the other. There are situations where the information may not be necessarily valid depending on who it's coming from if it's not coming from somebody that's qualified you know then you you know it's like buyer beware but you you raise a really interesting point because again each instructor has maybe a specific area they might focus on they might specialize in what have you and i think it goes to something that you said earlier tonight on the panel discussion and that is really finding what works for you so what works for me, let's say, may not necessarily work for you, depending on the circumstances and depending on the, the environment um, of, of uh, the way we swing, the way we, uh, you know, address the ball, all kinds of variables can come into play. Um, so from that standpoint, I think you're exactly right in that we have to first decide what's going to work for us. And I think the way from a coach's perspective, and I want you to expand a little bit on that is where I'm going, is this is where the importance of an assessment comes into play very early on. Talk a little bit about that, the importance of it, and how you go about doing it. Well, I think the assessment is uh, a number of things. Uh, it starts with the interview. Uh, very first lesson with somebody, I need to get an understanding of a number of things from that player. Uh, I want to know a little bit about their history in the game. Have they played the game of golf? Have they taken instruction? Have they not played the game of golf? I also want to understand, have they played any other sports? Uh, because oftentimes, 
somebody, maybe they were a high school baseball player and took up the game 10 years later of golf. Well, there's a lot of parallels to what they did as a high school baseball player to what they need to do with the golf swing. Uh, So we need to understand that. I want to understand, are there any limitations to their abilities to move? Have they had any surgeries? Did they have a knee replacement? Or uh, We had our PGA home first uh, class yesterday, and uh, I had somebody who was in the school in, the, in August of last year, came back this year, and in between there had several uh, areas of their back fused together. So that person changed the dynamics of what they could do in the last six months. Uh, we need to understand what limitations they might have on uh, their mobility. And then I want to understand what what are their goals. Is this a person that's here that I want to just hit some balls a little bit better and enjoy the game more? Well, that's a one, one type of approach to a, a learning process versus, you know, I've taken up this game and I want to get a college scholarship or I want to be a single-digit handicap, and I want to win the club championship. Those take very, very different approaches to the the teaching and the learning process. And we have to understand how much time can they commit to it? What time do they want to commit to it? If they come to me and say, you know what, I want to come see you, I want to take some lessons, and I might practice once a week. Well, I would like you to practice twice before you come see me again. So that now has just established how frequently they're going to come back for a lesson. And I can tailor their learning process to that amount of time that they would give to the game. Um, So I think it's very important that we meet the player with what they want to do, and then we tailor our programs and how we communicate to them based on them. If I have uh, a a lady who, and I've had this, where uh, a husband passed away, I want to take up golf. She's 75 years old, uh, brand new, never played any golf, never played any sports. My communication is going to be different with her versus the gentleman who's 35 years old and is an engineer. We can talk differently right. with those two people, and we need to talk to them. I hold the idea that my teaching is I teach people. I happen to teach in the subject matter of golf, but I'm teaching a person. Uh, I'm not teaching golf. Right. Well well said. And I think also, too, um, and I think you would agree with this, that the assessment process is ongoing, right? It's not just – Obviously, it starts with initial interview and, and gathering some information so you have a better understanding of the student, but there's a, an ongoing assessment as the process continues. You're always in a sort of a reassessment. Is, is that correct? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, that reassessment uh, is is one of the biggest joys of teaching the game. Uh, for example, when you have a player who comes to you and and I'll use the the example of a fairly new golfer and they come to you and they miss it a couple times and they and they top and roll it down the fairway 30 yards and 
and that's the first lesson and we start seeing it pop into the air and and they're excited about that ball going in the air so our assessment of what we're doing at that point is let's call it x and then we have this person coming back every other week and we're six months down the road and now they never miss it in the lesson they only top it once in a while and now when they hit it in the air it goes out there 100 yards and they're disappointed because it didn't go 120 yards i've got a different assessment but what's really fun is that first lesson when it got in the air and it mattered not whether it went on target left right or 10 yards or 20 yards now a ball on target 100 yards is a disappointment because their expectations have changed therefore my assessment and my approach has to change somewhat as well and and it's 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 so much fun to see how their expectations change and they forget about what it was like six months ago when they were missing it and topping it and now they're hitting some what you think are pretty darn good shots and they're saying hmm, it could be better and that's fun to right see. Yeah, and that, that's also encouraging, too, to, to see that they're wanting more. That's, I think, equally the fun of it as well is it's, you know, they're past the point necessarily hitting bad shots. I'm not saying, you know, we all hit some bad shots, but they're they're grooving a swing now where they're it's becoming more repeatable. Um, now it's just a matter of fine-tuning it, helping them to gain more distance and things like that. And it's always encouraging when they're excited about the process. That's when I think it's, the, as you said, the most fun is now they're, looking and, and they're sort of doing their own assessment, um, not just relying on what you're telling them, but they're doing their own assessment saying, you know what, hey, I'm, I'm understanding this. I'm, I'm getting in a role here. I want to see how much better I can get. So now they're they're trying to move the stick a little bit further, uh, even on their own, um, without always having to sort of be prodded with that. And that's that makes it fun. I want to get into... Absolutely. Right? Right, go ahead if you want to have a yeah, uh, comment yeah. there. Yeah, I wanted to just touch on a, on, a, on another way to look at that. There are times they, they're very excited about seeing their successes, but then for me it's also exciting to see when they get frustrated with shots that are really good, comparatively speaking, to two months ago. They're really good, but they're disappointed in them because they're not as good as they think they should be. And to me, that's fun because now I need to rechannel them and rethink about that relative to two months ago and how much better it is and where do you think we're going from here. And so you can take their negativity and turn it to a positive and, and see that light bulb go back on for them and say, huh, you're right. I wasn't that, I wasn't as good as I am now. And now I'm saying, that's not very good. Well, Guess what? We're going to another level. We are going to another mm -hmm. level, and you've already gone to another level. Yeah, yeah, and that, that again, and that's what you want. You want them always wanting more. You always want them to be excited and encouraged. Um, and you know they're going to have certainly setbacks along the way, and that's just to, to be you know, and even the best of the best sometimes will have some challenges that they're going to be faced with. But when they're always wanting to you know, more and to, to go that next level and to go a little bit further, that's always certainly exciting. I want to uh, move on to practice. This is an area um, where I, I think a lot of students miss the boat. Um, 
it's not just a matter of practicing, but how we practice. Give us some thoughts here on this. Again, it's going to vary student to student, I'm sure, but give us a general overview, if you wouldn't mind, on how we need to be practicing. What should we be focusing on? How do you, again, through assessments, however you want to apply it, how do we decide both from a player standpoint and from a coach's standpoint how we should be practicing? Well, I think that uh, we as coaches need to uh, educate them on uh, the types of practice that uh, there are. There, there's there's some very, very different ways to approach practice. Uh, there's the, the practice of I'm trying to improve the skill of hitting a golf ball. And if we're let's let's uh, isolate that to uh, full swing. Uh, I'm trying to make my golf swing better. Uh, let's call it more perfect. I don't think you can create a perfect golf swing, but we can continue to improve and refine it. Um, well, if I'm trying to make my golf swing better, let me practice in a condition that is best, meaning. The lie of the golf ball is perfect. It's as good as it can be. And if that means your practice facility is such that you need to put it on a tee, put it on a tee. I practice every time when I'm working on improving my golf swing with the ball on a tee. I just recently watched a video from Mr. Sir Nick Faldo, and he talked about when he was working on his technique, he hit every golf ball on a tee, meaning we're going to practice from a perfect situation. I like to have the player have some sticks on the ground. Uh, in my day of competing, we didn't have alignment sticks, so it was my uh, one and two iron that laid on the ground and gave me my direction so that I could now assess what the ball was doing and have that alignment and aim wasn't the reason that my ball went off target. Uh, and then I like that alignment, depending on skill set, I like to be play uh, practicing towards an area, uh, certain parameters. If you're a new golfer, that parameter might be that you're hitting a seven iron and you're trying to fit it into an area that maybe is 50 yards wide versus practicing directly to a flag. Uh, at a certain skill level, that's important. That's a good target. But at other skill levels, it might be best to be within 50 yards. Then it becomes 40. Then it becomes an area of 30 yards. Then it becomes an area of 20 yards. And we continue to refine that based on our uh, skill level. Uh, and there's a, a, a need for them to practice with rehearsals. I see so often people go buy a large bucket of balls, take it down to the range, they dump it over, and they start hit and rake. Hit a ball, rakes one over, and by the, they're in a position now that they're hitting multiple balls in the air at the same time, and all they're doing is exercising, especially when they do that and they hit a few indifferent shots, they get frustrated and they hit even faster. 
and all they're doing is working up a sweat. They're not changing or improving what they're doing. So understanding as a player, what kind of rehearsals do I need to do? What kind of drills do I need to do? Has my instructor given me uh, a position to try and see where I've put the club? Maybe I need a mirror there to be able to see that. When I'm uh, training players to practice, I encourage them to do at least three rehearsals of the change they're trying to make or three actions within a drill of the change they're trying to make before they hit a ball. And then they pull over and they tee a new ball up within our uh, sticks that are parallel to each other and aimed to our area, tee that ball up, then go do the rehearsals, get the feeling of what we're training, and then go hit a ball. And try to keep the rehearsal and training to one specific task. If your lesson has multiple things to think about, stay focused on one task for a period of time, then move to the other one, and then see if you can get them to transfer and start to blend together to be successful with your shots. When I was competing, I would do that by half a day. I would spend the morning on one task, the afternoon on another task. And in those time frames, I would hit just some normal shots to see if it was working. Now, most of our players don't have that kind of time. So maybe it's right. four or five golf balls on a task to the next one. But don't fall into the trap of, well, I'm learning how to swing it down from the inside and try that up. I missed that. I'll try it again. Oh, I got it, but I missed the other. Now I go to the other one. No, stay on five or six balls in one task, in one drill, then go to the next, then mix in some regular shots. Um, So have a plan in their practice. Have something there for how we're going to improve this skill. Now, the, all of that information was based on the idea of improving technique, but there's other types of practice. That would be block practice. There's random practice where we're trying to hit different types of shots. Maybe you're at a skill level that you want to hit low and high, uh, try to curve it one direction or another. That would be random type of practice. Uh, maybe you would play uh, a hole at your home golf course on the range. Imagine what it looks like to play the first hole and hit your driver. And then the next time, or next shot would be the anticipated club you would hit to the green. And then decide whether you made the green or not and maybe hit a chip shot. Uh, and so change up the types of shots. And that would be starting to take the technique that you've tried to make better and applying it to a situation. And then there's the practice to go learn and and work on playing. Uh, I went out the other day to play, played about five holes and dropped balls in different situations and tried to work on my uh, strategy. How would I decide how to hit this shot or hit that shot? 
And so you're taking learning technique, then randomizing it into different situations, and then starting to apply it on the golf course. Um, so very, very different types of practice uh, there, but have a plan for it. Yeah, and I think the key too, Jim, is is to practice with purpose. You know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, sort of hitting and raking, and, and we see that so many times. I see that all the time when I go up to the range and, you know, people get into it and then boredom sets in. You know, they're doing the same thing. They're not really focusing on the things they need to be. They're not obviously seeing any, any uh, reasonable improvement um, because they're not really practicing with any sort of purpose. And, um, you know, the other thing, too, is uh, especially, you know, when they're, you know, if they're doing, you know, in, in sort of block practice, that's one thing. But if they're in maybe random as another, um, you know, um, or practicing specific for specific holes uh, for on, you know, real course situations, they need to be working on their pre-shot routine, you know, incorporate that in well for each shot instead of just hitting a shot and then hitting the next one, go through your re- routine, whatever routine has been set up for you or, or you've you know, incorporated yourself. You need to practice that because how many times do we see, you know, the average golfer going out there and one, you know, maybe the first tee they go through a routine, uh, maybe even the next shot, and then all of a sudden when the wheels fall off the bus, uh, suddenly the, the pre-shot routine is, is gone by the wayside or maybe a few holes down because they're frustrated and they're not following and sticking to that routine. So I think, it, you know, the, the examples that you gave are, are spot on. And I think really, ultimately, they, they need to have some sort of purpose. And that's something that, you know, you and, and others that are in the coaching uh, side of things uh, can help them with when they get out there is helping them to develop a good plan so that when they go out on the, on the, on the practice uh, area by themselves, they've got a good game plan in mind. I want to move, uh, as I'm keeping an eye on our time here, um, in addition to obviously practicing, one of the things, and you touched on this as well in the um, – um, coach's corner segment a little bit about ball flight. So um, when we're practicing, we need to look at um, what the ball does and does not do. Can you expand a little bit on that? What are we looking for? Absolutely. Um, you know, as I was talking about working on a specific item and maybe you have two things you need to do in in your uh, improvement, uh, you need to be able to look at the flight of the golf ball and assess and determine which of those items is working and which of those items is not working. And so if I were to take an example of a player who uh, we would diagnose them to be uh, an out-to-end golf swing with an open club face, and so as a right-handed golfer, this person's got the um, golf ball starting left of their target and curving to the right. And so perhaps their lesson is overall the lesson is we need you to strengthen your grip in position on the golf club. And what that means is if there were a V form between the thumb and index finger of both hands, that those V's would, say, point towards their right shoulder with the club face starting out square. And so that correction was to adjust what's happening with the club face, and it's that face-to-path relationship 
that's causing the ball to curve to the right. So if we get the hands on there correctly, and that helps us to use the face properly, now the club face is matched up to the direction the club's traveling. So instead of the ball flight being one that started left and curved to the right, the face is now square to the path, and now it's starting left and staying pulled to the left. And so you may not, that player may not like that shot because now instead of it starting 30 yards left and curving back 30 yards to the right and being on target, which might be a good way to play golf, although we may be losing a lot of distance because of it, they're now seeing their ball start left and stay left and fly 30 yards left of plan. And if they're looking solely at what happened, frustrated. And so I like to talk to the student about saying what did not happen. Well, the ball did not curve to the right. Therefore, I made a change. I changed something to do with the club face. I am now getting better at getting my grip on there correctly and moving the club face correctly. Well, now that the ball's flying 30 yards to the left, I don't have a need to swing over there. So now I can spend time working on the next piece of the lesson, which is to get the club to swing down to the golf ball from the inside. And so now they can work on the things that maybe are going to improve the swing path to return to the ball from the inside. And that might sound like I need you to square the shoulders move your ball position a little more to the center of your stance, get yourself to turn your right shoulder as a right-handed golfer so that the club can return from the inside. Now, that player may go and work on that and do their drill that helps with that, and all of a sudden that ball starts slicing again. Well, we now can assess that ball flight, I can now go back and do what fixes that curve, check my grip, mm -hmm. and perhaps I have a drill that I can do of hitting my golf ball with my feet together, which helps me to release the club head. So now I go back and I do that. Now that ball's not slicing, but I'm hitting it 30 yards left again. Well, I'm looking and seeing it didn't slice, so I'm getting better at that fix. Let me now spend some time on the next one. So looking at what the ball does and what it does not do can help with your learning process. You know, what, what's really interesting about that, Jim, uh, from a player's perspective, is it's really a very valuable tool for them to be able to now understand as a result of what's happening with the ball flight once they get that tool in their bag, if you will, and understand the, the sort of the causes and effects, then they're able to isolate it much easier. You know, and again, what I like how you very eloquently pointed out is you didn't two or three changes at once. You, you obviously, the path was wrong. The club face was wrong. You didn't try to change both at once. 
you broke them down one at a time. There were two fixes that needed to happen. You addressed the one first, found, okay, aha, we've, we've isolated that one. We've corrected that one. Now let's work on the next one. And I think the problem with a lot of golfers is when they're trying to fix themselves and they don't really understand that sort of cause and effect from the ball flight, what they end up ultimately doing is making radical changes. We see this a lot of times when they're on the golf course. They're not thinking clearly because they don't understand why things are happening the way they are. So they start monkeying around with their entire swing and then the grip and then all of this out there on the golf course, and they ultimately end up, in many cases, making matters worse. Is that, I think, a fair assessment? Absolutely. The, the, the challenge is we, we get all this information from all these different sources. Excuse me. And we, the player doesn't know which, uh, which tool to pull out of their toolbox to fix the, 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 the challenge or the problem. And I try very, very hard in the lessons that I give one in general terms of what ball flight is, what happens when the face is incorrect or the path or the angle of approach, and I keep it to those three ingredients because I believe the other three that the PGA would talk about uh, kind of take care of themselves for the most part, not 100%, but mostly, uh, and we keep it to that, and they finish the lesson understanding that if the ball does X, and I'm just going to use curves to the right. You, player, your fix is check the grip and do the drill of hitting balls with your feet together. And if your ball is straight to the left, here's the drill to do. Turn and swing it down from the inside. Uh, draw your right foot back and turn the right toe out 45 degrees to your target line and swing sometimes to see the ball, the club come from the inside. Do that if that is occurring so that when they're on the golf course and maybe they hit a tee shot and it started dead on target but sliced to the right, I don't want them to do anything but check the grip and learn to release that club, do some rehearsals with the feet together. So they get the mm -hmm. tools to fix their faults, not the whole toolbox to fix every kind of fault, right. but don't know whether I should grab a Phillips screwdriver or a flat blade or a pair of pliers <laughs> or a crescent wrench. <laughs> right. we, want them to, we want them to grab the right tool for the, for the fix. Yeah, and I think it's important, I mean, obviously, as they become more proficient and understand it, they can kind of do these things on the fly. But we certainly, very early on in the process, you don't want them monkeying around. And, and this is something that they can take away from the pros. I mean, obviously, the pros of doing this long enough, and if, it, if there becomes a, a ball flight issue for them, which, you know, is not um, you know, certainly as common as for our high handicappers, you know, they can make a very simple tweak out there, even in, in mid-round, um, and and resolve the issue if it's something if it's something more challenging even for them they're going to wait until after that round they're going to go to the to the lesson or to the uh, range afterwards um, and work things out there the problem with a lot of our high handicappers is they do the opposite they start monkeying around mid round and over 
again, not really having the right tools or understanding what needs to happen, uh, end up getting things and in, in, in it's, it's chaos. So I, I think it's, it's, you know, if it's something relatively simple, if it's just a matter of, you know, they're slicing the ball, but the path is good and they know it's a grip problem and they've been, you know, given the proper uh, steps to correct that, you know, within reason, go ahead and do that, uh, even if it's mid-round. But if it's more complicated than that and takes more involvement, you can't always do that on the fly um, when you're playing in your club championship because then you're going to end up with a, a rotten score and and probably you're not going to be the most popular guy when he comes back on off of hole uh, off of the 18th green. Uh, so I, I think there's a time and a place for that. Would you agree? And I think, um, but once they sort of get that and and understand what needs to happen, then they're going to build confidence in being able to resolve some of the issues themselves, right? Absolutely, and, and when I'm describing that they would do a fix on the golf course, that fix is solely and completely in some form of rehearsal, some form of mm-hmm. part of their pre-shot routine or post-shot routine. It's not part and parcel of executing the shot because once we get through uh, making our decision of our shot, we have to go play that shot. And we have to believe that we're going to perform the way we want it to perform. And if it doesn't do what I want it to do, I can do a rehearsal with the fix and then hope that that transfers to the shot. But we're not going to be thinking about the fix in the golf swing when I'm hitting a shot, maybe my tee shot or or second Mm -hmm. shot into a green. So, yes, in the, the, the majority of that practice time and fix time is going to be post-round out there on right. the range. And that's what you see the, the players of the world do. Yeah, I mean, they all do it. You know, I mean, again, if it's a very minor tweak, you might, you know, see them, you know, when the announcers say, well, he's, you know, he's hitting it, it's leaking a little bit to the right. You know, they might make an adjustment. They recognize that they're not hitting their, their mark or their targets. Um, so they know that that it's obviously something's not right. They'll make that adjustment uh, on the fly. But if it's something a little bit more involved and complex, you'll never. I mean, and if you do, he's he's you know probably way down on the money list. You're not going to see a, a PGA or LPGA professional doing that and last very long out on tour, um, where they're going to start monkeying around with with uh, more complicated uh, things. Uh, certainly mid round, uh, not as I say, if they want to be successful. What is speed in the golf swing? What what are what are we looking for here? What what are you meaning by that? Um, I, I believe that uh, the speed of golf swing gets misunderstood uh, too often. Uh, you know, I, I learned uh, jokingly. I learned at a young age that my dad's uh, hand move faster than my backside. And I think it's true that our hands and arms, truly what the speed is in the golf swing, they move faster than your torso and your hips. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that your body, your hips, legs, torso don't have a job to do. They support and help to enhance the ability for your arms to swing with speed. Unfortunately, 
we hear a lot of conversation about, and, and Rory's a great example about how he transitions and uses his hips, but he's still swinging those arms. And, and those arms are timing up and in proper sequence to how his hips are rotating through the shot, which is why he is so fast and why he can hit it as far as he does. The unfortunate thing that I find in golf instruction is that we we get fixated on hips and or torso, and we lose sight of arms. And, and a lot of the interpretation to our players, they lose sight of the arms. So let's just take the example, again, of our player who has an open club face. That's a club face that's arriving late to the party. And mm-hmm. if that player now reads that Rory uses his hips and transitions with his hips early in the downswing and really unwinds them quickly, that potentially will slow down the sequence of the arms, which just made a slicer one that slices it farther. And so we have to understand the sequence of events that happens with the hips, the the torso, and our arms and hands, and most importantly, club head. And I like to think about the action of the body is there for two reasons. One, the ball's to the side of us, so there has to be a circling motion that goes around the body. But number two, and this helps us to understand sequence of events, is the body's rotation is providing the room for us to swing our arms up and down. And so if we just kind of dissect that for a moment and said in the backswing, where does the club need to go? Well, it needs to move to the inside, and it needs to move up and over our shoulders. So we need to move the trail side of our body. As a right-handed golfer, that would be the right side of our body. needs to rotate to give us the inward and upward space for the golf club. Now, from the top of the backswing, with our shoulders turned sufficiently, we have sufficient room for the arms to begin go down. However, if my hips don't begin to rotate, I will run out of room quickly. So my arms are going down, my hips have begun to rotate, and as I go through the strike and a club is coming back to the inside on the through swing, I now need room up above so my torso needs to continue to unwind. And we run into problems when we make a good backswing, say, and our shoulders try to begin making room in the downswing before the arms go down. And that causes the arms to go outward and swing to the left of our target line too soon. So the body's rotation supports the space for the arms to swing, and the rotation in the proper sequence 
makes the arm swing at a faster rate. But the speed really is from your arm swing supported by what the body does. And, and, you know, just a sort of a final thought on that. It's amazing when people truly understand the, the proper sequence, just how much speed they can generate. If the spotty is out of sequence, it can actually slow it down to the point where you actually are not uh, generating very much speed or not as much speed as, as your potential, and that ultimately loses distance. You know, people are always thinking, well, I just got to swing faster and I got to do that. And, but if you're not in sequence, you're not likely going to see any difference, uh, certainly not a positive difference. And, you know, we always see these players, like you mentioned, Rory and others, and that they're just, you know, they've torqued their bodies so much. But, you know, you know these guys are, are certainly much younger and can generate a, a lot of uh, speed. What people don't understand is they're swinging within sequence. And if they weren't, I don't care how fast they're twisting their bodies, if they were out of sequence, all of that speed is going to be for naught. And that's what people just don't get. So I would rather have a student that's swinging in sequence, and even if he's not as fast, he's still going to make good contact and going to get good distance. And you can see that in many, many drills um, where, uh, you know, making good solid contact and using the proper body sequence um, is going to generate some good distance. And I think people need to understand that. And I think you've done a pretty good job of explaining that tonight. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, it's and you know, I think we could go on. And I think that sequence is what, I'm sorry, I, I think that sequence is what we hear so often, you know, the, the professionals, they people say it looks so effortless. Well, it's, yep. effort, it, it's not effortless. There's a lot of effort going on, but it's it's efficient <laughs> and it's in the right sequence of events. Yeah, well said. Well, my friend, we uh, it's hard to believe, but uh, we've, we've blown away two hours in total tonight, you and I. And uh, I want to preach. Hopefully, I'm glad you were you were able to to hang on. It's a long, um, you know. There's been a few others over the years that uh, have been on the panel and have been my special guests. And I, I got to tell you, it's not easy. It's tough for me sometimes. I uh, sometimes wish I had a pillow here or something I could lay down. Not that I don't enjoy the conversations, but it's a long haul uh, to be here, especially after a busy day uh, at the lesson tee. So, um, but Jim, I want to thank you um, for, for uh, again, uh, being my special guest tonight and, and also for uh, uh, jumping in uh, this season on the Coach's Corner panel. It's, uh, it's been an honor and I enjoy it. I know you've got many more uh, times that you'll be on throughout the season, but uh, always, as I said, at the end of the show uh, or at the end of the segments, I like to give uh, my special guest, the opportunity to uh, share with the listeners if uh, those that want to reach out, whether they're in the Florida area or if they want to communicate with you uh, or maybe uh, are looking for some help with their game, what's the best way that they can reach out to you? Um, by all means, go ahead. Well, they can always email me directly at jim at indicottgolf.com. Uh, my Facebook page is Royal St. Cloud Academy. And uh, my website is RoyalStCloudAcademy.com. And I uh, would love to have uh, anybody reach out and see if I can. Uh, would love to have the opportunity to help people with their game. Uh, I could uh, I could talk golf uh, for another couple hours. I you get me I going, know. and I as you might have already seen, I don't stop. Oh. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. I love the game, and I, I love to help others to enjoy it as well. Well, that's what that's what and I appreciate it. That's what we're here for, and and uh, you know, is to share this great game and, and to help uh, others with their uh, challenges they may be faced with. And uh, again, uh, just to reiterate uh, what, what you were talking about earlier, for those that uh, maybe are experiencing some challenges, uh, maybe you're, you're a veteran um, and have served uh, your country, and and. Uh, you're looking for a great way to, to not just relieve some of the stress, but to get out there and, and have a good time with, with some of your comrades. The PGA Hope um, is, is a great way to, to do that. And, Jim, if you want to very quickly just let the folks know the best way that they can learn more information about that. Uh, PGA Hope, you can find information on uh, uh, PGA.com. You could Google PGA Hope itself uh, or reach out to – the uh, VA hospital in your area and ask for their adaptive sports uh, person, uh, which they coordinate all different types of uh, types of sports for uh, our veterans. And or you could reach out to the local section of the PGA and they can uh, get you information. And uh, or the PGA headquarters, uh, they can uh, steer you in the right direction. Uh, or you can reach out to me at the email I gave you, and I'd be happy to steer you in the right direction and give you any more information that I can about the program. It's a wonderful program, not only for the veterans, but for the people who are facilitating it. It's so rewarding to do what we do. Well said. And so no excuses uh, uh, to you veterans out there. There's lots of great ways to connect with us to, to be able to get in and be a part of this program. So. Lots of great ways. You can, as you said, reach out to Jim personally, and, and he will uh, do his best to steer you in the right direction. But, Jim, thank you very much for joining me tonight, uh, again, on the panel and also uh, as my special guest of the evening. And I look forward to uh, having you join us on the next Coach's Corner panel. So have a great uh, uh, Easter holiday weekend. Get some rest. I know you probably got some teaching going on as well, but don't forget to uh, uh, have some time for yourself too. And uh, But I appreciate you spending some time with me and my audience tonight. Well, thanks so much, Ted, for having me, and uh, look forward to the next opportunity. All right. You have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. You, you do the same. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was uh, tonight's special guest and also a panelist, Jim Endicott. And thanks, uh, again, a special thanks to Pete Buchanan earlier for joining us on the Coach's Corner panel. Always a, a great time with, with the guys uh, on the panel discussions. Um, on that note, um, happy Easter, everybody. Have a, a great holiday. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you all here next time right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody, and have a great weekend. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel, and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.